As Brandon shared earlier, we conclude the Sermon on the Mount. We've been in this text for eight months. Um, we covered three chapters of the entire Bible in eight months. So we're on a slow but steady pace. Um, but again, we're just glad to, to be here with you this morning, excited to see what the Lord has for us as we come to this concluding space in what, what I believe is like the greatest single teaching in all of human history. Yeah, so just excited, excited for what God has. Just want to paint, paint a picture real quick. I want you to imagine Monday, July 21st, the year is 1952. It's 4.52 in the morning, and everything, you live in Bakersfield, and everything begins to shake. The city we now exist in then has a population of 35,000 people. And the first, as soon as the shaking occurs, people don't recognize it's an earthquake. But actually, most people thought it's the Russians attacking. We're not too long post-World War II, and tension between the Americans and the Russians is still in the air. You can feel it. But as people come to grips with what's happening, they realize that like this great earthquake has just struck in the Central Valley, a 7.3 magnitude earthquake, the strongest to hit California since the San Francisco earthquake in 1906. Hundreds of people are injured, 12 people died, and somewhere between 50 and $60 million in damage was done on that Monday morning. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house. What's most interesting about this passage is that Jesus continues with his storytelling and with his teaching that, to paint this picture of a life with, with only two choices. Not like Baskin Robbins 31 flavors, but like chocolate or vanilla beach or mountains, narrow path or wide path, the house standing or the house falling. And this surely heightens the senses because in our modern world, we have no shortage of decisions to make. It's the reason Steve Jobs is famous for always wearing the same thing because he just wanted one less decision to make each and every day. In a world of so many choices, we've actually like moved from a place where in all of human history, uh, they weren't making choices about, about frivolous things. They were surviving, like that was a thing. You used to have to survive to live. Now we like live and flourish, I use that word loosely, to the point where we've created new language to describe our struggle, which is decision fatigue. We are tired of making choices over and over and over again. How can I constantly not weigh whether to choose chocolate or vanilla, but like the hundreds of choices in front of me? Even living here in the Central Valley, it's like you have, if you have 48 hours to do whatever you want on the weekend. Go ahead and look at all of California and pick what you want to do. There's an endless amount of choices in front of us, and, and Jesus doesn't paint those types of pictures. Jesus continues to paint these, these two option choices, and he doesn't end here. It doesn't end in the Sermon on the Mount. He continues to talk about this even through the rest of the book of Matthew. Think of like the sheep and the goats. 
Another two option choice placed in front of us. Now I personally, I am not very artistic. In fact, teaching the Bible, making things with words might be the most artistic thing that I do in my life. And even that's a bit of a stretch. But I remember when a friend of mine and I were making a cross for a Good Friday service a number of years ago, probably a decade now. And I remember I went out to his house and we built this cross out of wood and he said, what color do you want it? And I said, I don't know, wood? Like, it's like brown? And he's like, okay, then let's, let's paint it brown. And so I'm like, sweet, let's, where's the brown paint? And he's like, no, we need, like, we need all my paints. We don't just need brown paint. So he gets out like a bunch of paint. And now I'm like really confused. And he starts to take this cross and first he like paints it yellow. And I'm like, I don't, I think I said brown. Like, I don't, I don't understand why this is so difficult. And, and after the yellow, he like puts on blue. And after the blue, puts on red. And at this point, I remember thinking like, I think I told Jackie I'll already be home. And here we are with like a, a blue and yellow and red cross. And after a few more layers of colors, he finally gets to the brown and paints the brown on top of all these colors. And he said to me, the brown looks more brown and more beautiful when it has something to contrast against it. You see, Jesus could have just said, build your house on the rock and it won't fall. And he wouldn't be wrong, he would be right, surely. But the emphasis, in some ways, would end up being put on the wrong, like, syllable. Like, it's, it's, we have to catch what Jesus is doing by giving us this contrast. It would be likely that if he just said that, build your house on the rock, and that's it, that we would take this passage as a command to obey rather than a choice to be made. It's this very contrast that brings out the beauty of what Jesus is trying to, be, trying to communicate throughout all of the Sermon on the Mount, in particular his conclusion here as we work through the warning passages of the Sermon on the Mount. I want to read this text again just briefly, verses 24 through 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. This contrast that Jesus paints is, is very specific and it's actually unique amongst some of the others. Jesus is contrasting those who hear his words and put them into practice with those who hear his words and don't put them into practice. And the only difference he's describing between the two is the foundation of your life is the foundation of your life putting Jesus's words into practice or is it something different? 
The only difference between the house that stands strong when the storms come. And just notice some of Jesus' language. It's not about like if the storm might come. Just sit in that for a second. It's not about, and we, I think we know this, like tangibly we know this through the experience of life. It's not about if the storm will come, but when the storm will come. Because Jesus here is even indicating that the storm surely will come. Difficulty will come. Hardship will come. Suffering will come. And the answer will not be like when the storm comes, run quickly to try to stormproof your house by throwing some wood on the windows and putting up some barriers around the doorways to make sure that water doesn't get in. But when the storm comes, the answer will have already been chosen over a thousand decisions in a hundred normal and ordinary ways what you have built your life on. The answer will have already been made when the storm comes. When the storm comes, we do, I do. When my storms come, I try to storm-proof my house as quickly as I can, but it's too late. But the storm, often, it has to. The storm reveals what we've built our life on. And the question today is like, what, what is that? Is it some version of the American dream? Is it getting the right job so you can make the right money to have the right days off? Is it getting the right education? Or is it getting the right education for your children? Or getting your kids on the right team? Or giving them the right access? Or giving myself access to the people that I really want? Or influence in certain places that I've always held as valuable? What is your life actually built on? What is your life actually built on? One of the unique things about this parable is that we know when builders build something, they keep in mind like the geographical location of a building. Where is this going to be? What are the potential threats and harms to the building? What are the risks and what are the things that this building is going to need to endure? And in that way, we know the building, literally the building we sit in is unique. This is the only religious structure that survived the 1952 earthquake, the church that we sit in today. It's one of the most historic buildings in downtown and one of the few that survived. There used to be a clock tower on 17th and Chester got completely destroyed, had to be torn down. Just across the street here, the downtown courthouse fell and collapsed in on itself down the street. For those of you that don't know, St. Francis Catholic Church used to be on Truxton Avenue. It collapsed as well, now over on H Street. You see, this building was built in 1931 and was built slowly over long periods of time. In fact, it was built six inches at a time. This tower, this space was built six inches at a time. If you go into the courtyard later after the gathering, don't leave now, that would be awkward. Um, but you can see the layers of building. You can see the six inches stacked on top of one another. There's some picture about like slow formation over long periods of time that give you the ability to like endure storms. 
And I wish I could say that like Jesus's words map onto this building one for one, but they don't. The reason this building didn't fall was, was not because of its sure foundation. It was because the materials it was built with reinforced concrete walls. But there was intentionality when this building was built, that it would be built strong and have the ability to endure. And in Jesus' parable, he speaks about the only element that, of matter being that of the foundation. And this building is an example of, of like the reinforced cement walls is what like makes up the building. But, but both of those pictures, Jesus's in the picture of this building and why it survived, both of them imply that we build with like intentional and enduring eyes that see something way longer than the thing in front of us. And I think most often when we picture building a life, we do the exact opposite. We don't see a long window, but we see a short window. I think most often we build a life based on the convenience and the happiness we perceive that's right in front of us. And that that, choosing that time and time again actually produces something in us that's like this level of comfort where we push away any suffering or any hardship. It's actually why the night of lament in our church community is so important because we have to be honest with our hurt and honest with our pain and take those things to the presence of God, not run away from them. We lean into them because those are the ways that like Christ forms us and also the way like we experience healing in the hurt of this world. And the reality is, like, while we spend most of our lives trying to push those things away, those are actually the things that Jesus says are for sure going to come. The reality is that we prepare for a storm, whether we realize it or not, each and every day, or we don't prepare for a storm each and every day. And it's not these big, majestic movements. It's the, like, 100 ordinary ways. I remember a pastor I know on the coast, um, when his daughter got sick a number of years ago, his little girl had cancer, and um, a few months in, people are like, how are you surviving this? And I remember him just crying, going, like, I'm just really glad that, like, I've had an hour of prayer in my pocket for decades. Like it's, I, apart from that foundation of intimacy and faithfulness with Jesus, I don't know that we can survive the storms when they come. We can't just like grab a Bible verse and keep quoting it to ourselves and hope we make it through. It just, it just won't do. It's not sufficient. It just won't do. And that, that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that, um, as, like, as these storms come and as we experience hurt and pain and suffering, whether that's like a difficult diagnosis or a loss of a loved one, it doesn't mean that like Jesus won't, regardless of our foundation, of course, Jesus will meet us in those spaces. He's kind like that. God will always come near to the brokenhearted, the book of Psalms say. 
but our lives in some experience, in, in some way, shape, or form, will experience an enduring or a crumbling. Part of the reality of this text, and, and even like this sobering moment, is that we can't predict when life's storms are going to happen. You can't predict when difficulty is going to come your own way. You can't predict when a storm is going to come. You might even know, like we could forecast, weather looks poor, a storm might come, but we don't know for sure when it's going to hit. And, and Jesus, when he's, he's, where he's speaking geographically here, um, this is an area in Galilee that, that like is known for flash floods. It's known for like, like storms come suddenly and do great damage. So when Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount um, in this space that's notorious for flash floods, we, like we must keep in mind that, that like flash floods and storms in the ancient Near East when Jesus is talking doesn't like run down the curbs into the gutters and sometimes the gutters get full and it's in, an inconvenience. Like when Jesus is giving the sermon, like we're, we're really talking about homes being washed away. We're really talking about like grab your kids and make sure they're safe. Like, we're, 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 like this uh, perspective in a cultural and historical lens is really, really, really important to keep on because Jesus' words here aren't just this like theoretical distant possibility. This is a like very real possibility to the people that are listening to him. In a modern sense, we just don't think of it like that, like I said, because we have like drains and gutters and places where water go and sometimes our grass floods and that's a bummer and an inconvenience, but that's not the picture Jesus is seeing when he's talking about storms coming and bringing destruction. And we actually, if you follow the news, which I hope you do a little bit, but not too much because Lord help us. But if you follow the news in British Columbia right now, there's been this huge like infrastructure and supply issue because of massive floods happening in British Columbia. I was on a phone call this week with some friends and some pastors, and one of them is in British Columbia, and he's describing the immense amount of hurt and pain that this is bringing. Like they're literally helicoptering in groceries to places because they don't know how to get people what they need. But what he said was beautiful. It's like there's so much hurt and there's so much pain, but I've never seen, I've never seen the church shine like this before. I've never seen the church be so creative to find solutions to these gigantic problems that really only the local church could sort of do of like meet the individual and the family where they're at and meet their needs. And he said one of the things that's beautiful is, and we don't hear these stories often, which is why I love to share them, like there'll be a church that finds this beautiful creative way and then they run out of money and like another church will take their idea and then it becomes this like church competition thing and it's really weird and really hideous and, and we all despise that, I think. But he said one of the things is like there's a few churches that found really creative ways and all the other churches are like, we have an empty pocketbook, keep going. Like we'll just support you, keep doing the work, which is really, really beautiful to see. 
But I think that, again, like we have to keep in mind just this picture between modern infrastructure and, and what Jesus would have experienced or the people listening to Jesus would have experienced of these flash floods. And I know it's, it's even, and I'm going to mention it and then not talk about it because it makes us all uncomfortable. We live in a valley below a dam. Just think about that for half a second. <laughs> and then we're going to move on because we don't want to think about it too long. <laughs> But when the storm hits and when the foundation gets tested, because it will, when a person's life gets tested, when your life gets tested, it's not the exterior portion of your life that's going to be tested. That's a part of it. Like you might see difficulty happening on the outside. That might be a symptom but really, this is an inward, internal sort of thing. It's Jesus actually getting after the interior of someone's life. Like when you come to my house, and I hope you do, you can't see the foundation of our home the same way that you can't see the foundation of my life. You can't see what's underneath the floor, and you can't see what's in my heart. And if something is wrong with my foundation, that's going to affect my house in a significant way, in a significant way where like I can't just add paint to make it better. I can't change the windows or the doors or tear out a wall or buy some new plants. I have to address the foundation that it's affecting everything. And to address the foundation, I actually like have to allow life to get ugly for a minute before things can be put back together again. And when I say a minute, I mean like months, maybe years. Foundation work, interior work, character work, deep in like the inward parts of who we are is some of the hardest work we will ever do in our lives. Sometimes, again, in our modern sense, we forget that building things back in the ancient Near East was not quick nor easy. Today, you could pick a builder and build a home in three, four, or five months. Back then, it would take decades, sometimes generations, to build things. So laying a foundation may seem like a quick work for us. Like we come out and see the home site that we bought, and they poured concrete, and in like two days, we could ride our scooters on it, my kids anyway. So, but that sort of process, that sort of imagery is not at all what Jesus has in mind when he's talking about building a foundation or the foundation being tested or talks about like the foundation of our life, Jesus, in Jesus' time, like, like foundation work is no quick work. It's long and it's slow. It's often like compact this dirt and wait, compact the dirt and wait, maybe add some stone, let things settle, add some more. And Jesus, who, don't forget, is adopted by Joseph, Joseph, a construction worker. Often we call Jesus and Joseph uh, carpenters, but the technical term in Greek describes someone who works with their hands. And we often, uh, like, call them carpenters. I actually don't really know why. Jordan, tell me later. You probably do. But the issue with that is there's not, like, there's not much wood in Jerusalem and Galilee. So most scholars would actually say they're likely not carpenters. They're more like stonemasons. They're more like construction workers. They're more like people who uh, like chisel stone for a living and work on major sorts of projects. 
And so does that really matter? No, to be clear, not at all. But as we think about Jesus, the stonemason or the general contractor or the construction worker who would have apprenticed under his dad, we must realize that Jesus actually like knows in a physical way. Jesus knows the work of building a foundation and that it is a long, slow and labor filled process. Building a foundation is a slow, slow process that takes time. What actually might be a better metaphor for a modern here would be that of like a redwood tree. If you've ever been to the Trail of a Hundred Giants, just a couple hours away, some friends of mine in the back told me about it a number of years ago. It's a short hike through these gigantic trees, 300 feet in the air. And maybe instead of seeing like a quick foundation being laid, imagine the time and the care and the effort and the pace that a California redwood tree has to spend laying its roots down, deep and wide, healthy and well, into the ground to withstand the storms it's going to experience more than 300 feet tall. Building a foundation, having our foundation be upon the rock is something more like that. There's no quick way to set roots for a lifetime of becoming the thing that God has created you to be. And many of you in this room, if I'm just being honest, know your stories. Um, like we've been doing, many of us have been doing like foundation work at our very core. Some people are further along than others, two or three years in, and some just like got back to the studs again recently. Just like tore it all down and we're starting over. And I want to encourage you that like the work you're doing is good and holy it is kingdom work, and it does not feel anything like beautiful, but to Jesus' eyes, it is beautiful. It's hard, and it doesn't feel pretty, and you know the reason it doesn't feel pretty? Because it isn't pretty, and that's okay. And the hard things in life are often not the pretty things in life. So I also just want to like give permission in the room to like not play the dressed up church game. That if you've spent any time in Christianity, like this is something we do and know. We're just like, I always have to say I'm good. I always have to say I'm okay. I always have to say I'm doing well. Don't believe that lie. That's not the type of community we even want to be a part of, let alone build here. So like we could do the like fake blah, blah, blah thing, or we could be honest and real with the journey that we're on toward Christ because the, the reality is that like exactly where you're at is enough for God. And if it's enough for God, it's enough for the people around you. And if it's not enough for them, I don't know that those are the people we want around us anyways. God sees you and where you're at on this journey of remodeling your life. God takes these like broken images, these broken pictures, these torn down walls, and he makes things beautiful out of them. And this hard foundation work 
Maybe it's not foundation. Maybe it's like the foundation's okay, but the subfloor's destroyed. So we checked the foundation, but it's fine. So whatever, like whatever yours is, that's okay. But remember that you're doing it for a purpose and not for nothing. This is actually for your flourishing. Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount are, are, are difficult teachings, but it's not to tear you down, it's to build you into something more beautiful than you could ever have imagined. Rebuilding around Jesus' teachings and his ways, while it may feel ugly, is probably the most beautiful things we could ever do with our life. And if you're like in that journey and you're in this specific like really hard moment and dark place where it just feels like all the things around you all the time are going wrong, it feels like things can't ever be beautiful again. If that's you in this moment, just like just want to like remind you and free you and speak truth over you that like that's too a part of the healing process. That's a part of things being made well, again. It's like if you've ever had an open wound, sometimes the wound has to be like cut and cleaned and scrubbed. And I'll spare you the continuous ways I could describe hideous open wounds. Some of you are like queasy, others of you are like doctors and nurses, and you're like, I do this every day. (laughs) But think of like the mess that an artist has to create while he creates something beautiful or the chaos that is a snowstorm to get to a white Christmas morning. The list goes on and on as you faithfully abide with Jesus and with a community of people around you, trust the process of moving toward healing and that that healing is actually hard work, but it's good work. It's soul level, foundational, internal, like reorganizing around the person and the teachings of Jesus. This text in specific is Jesus' last warning in Matthew chapter 7. And, and again, like I said earlier, I really do believe the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest single teaching in all of human history. But what's interesting is that Jesus like wraps his sermon not with this beautiful conclusion, but he wraps it with like a a warning that that should like sober us in some ways. He teaches an entire sermon full of stark ideas that upset everyone's equilibrium. Think back to like love your enemy. If someone hits you, turn the other cheek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Ask, seek, and knock. Are you giving to the needy? That's the mark of true faith. Like all those sorts of things. Jesus teaches all of those sorts of things. And then he says, these are the things you must build your life upon. And the reality is that often in the church or in Christendom, we've come to believe that believing the right things is what it means to be a Christian. The right doctrines, the right views of Romans, the right whatever your like measuring stick has been. When in reality, being a Christian, following Jesus has always been about and will always be about being with Jesus, becoming like him and doing the things that Jesus himself did. Jesus' final warning here is clearly a call to action in your life. 
It's not to change the way you think about something. It's to change the thing that your life is built around and upon. The Greek word poieo is used 22 times in Matthew 5 through 7, eight times alone in the last 12 verses of the Sermon on the Mount. This word gets translated as like doing, bearing fruit, building, making, producing, declaring, practicing. These are the things Jesus is actually after in this sermon. Does he want you to believe the right things? Of course he wants you to believe the right things. But he doesn't want you just to think about them or him. Well, he wants his ways to become your ways. Scholar Donald Hagner says, perhaps no passage in the New Testament expresses more concisely and more sharply the essence of discipleship and that it is found not in words, nor in religiosity, nor in performance of excellent deeds in the name of Jesus, but only in the manifestation of true righteousness or only in the manifestation of doing the will of the Father is now interpreted through the teachings of Jesus. Let me summarize that real quickly. Discipleship is about doing the will of the Father as we see Jesus teach them to us. That is what Jesus is saying loudly and clearly as he wraps up the Sermon on the Mount. This is discipleship according to the Bible and Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus himself. It's not a class where we learn, but a commitment over a lifetime where we transform into something different than we were before. So as we look back at the last eight months of teaching from River and Way, or uh, this like very practically was chosen intentionally that this would be the bedrock of who our community is. And this ought to be, as we follow Jesus, like the bedrock of our own individual lives. This is our starting point, and from this place, Abiding in the presence, the goodness, the grace, and the patience of Jesus from here we build. But we don't build everything tomorrow. We practice a little each day. There's a great little book by John Ortberg called Training vs. Trying. That type of mindset, the heart posture of like, I'm not just going to try harder this week but we have to like retrain not just our, like what we do with our lives, but what we do with our hearts. We first must like train ourselves. It's the very reason the church calendar actually starts with Advent and not Easter, that we let anticipation first build in our hearts for the Savior of the world to come into the flesh. And as we train our hearts, we also take steps, we practice, we don't perfect, we practice with our lives. We will never, just like readily admit and say out loud, we will never perfect the Sermon on the Mount. That's not even what Jesus is asking. This is not a checklist of do's and don'ts. This is a picture of a flourishing life that flows from a heart and a life that has apprenticed, trained under, if you prefer that language, given your life to become like the person of Jesus and his ways. 
That is what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's not things that we do. It's an outpouring of who we have become. It's an invitation to a different way to be human, to a better story than any other story that exists in the human story. And as we move toward wrapping up, I want you to remember and even just like take a moment and look around. This building was built six inches at a time. There's no hack to doing beautiful things. There's no single thing you could do between like now and tomorrow morning that's beautiful and worthwhile and everlasting. You may be able to start something, but you're surely not going to finish it. But what the invitation that Jesus is getting after here is, will you go on a journey and take small and significant and regular steps to discovering and becoming the person God created you to be, the person that withstands the storm, the person that flourishes, the person that finds life and life abundantly. But we also must remember this is a warning from Jesus. It's a sobering moment. Imagine for a second that you are there outside listening to Jesus speak and everything he is saying sounds amazing. He's this great orator, storyteller, keeps me engaged in like all the educational modalities we now know about because we're experts. And he gets to the end and he says this. Here, this is my teaching. Build your life on it and you're like a wise man who cares about his life. But if you don't, Put this into practice. There's no caveat, no reason, no like I was too busy or I had young kids at home. That's not a shame statement over moms or dads, just to be clear. That's like, like parenting is hard. But no, like I didn't really feel like it. No, that wasn't a part of my plan. There's no like caveat that Jesus gives here, which is brilliant. But if you don't put them into practice, if you don't put my teachings into practice, Jesus' words, if you don't put them into practice, your life will be destroyed. And then Jesus says, like, have a great day. And walks off the stage. He has no other words. So while the invitation is beautiful and that it is, the moment in some ways is also heavy because it's filled with, like, holy invitation. There's this temptation to move past the heavy, but the reality is that Jesus gave this teaching and then said to his people, here it is, now what will you do with it? And in the same way, we receive the Sermon on the Mount. We receive all of Jesus' teaching. We receive the scriptures. And Jesus' question is the same today to us as it was then, here is my teaching. What will you do with that? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. Thank you that you meet us where we are and your expectations are not our expectations. Just even feel and sense in my own body, let alone in the room, that like, your expectations is not to become um, 
the person who I'm supposed to be a year from now, tomorrow. I want to say that again. Your expectation, Jesus, is not that I become the person tomorrow that I'm supposed to be a year from now. You see right where we are. And your invitation is not to like a moment of decision, but a lifetime of journey. And not alone like in the wilderness, but like with you hand in hand. Filled by the power of your spirit to become the thing you created us to be. Like your desire is for us to flourish. Would we really believe that again? After just some of my own like dark nights, sometimes it's hard to believe that, God. Just confess that. But your plans for your people, your plans for this community, you, your plans for people in this room are not to just like casually move through the world and hope that their foundation stands when the storm comes your plans, and if we agree to them, if we step into them, if we say yes to them, is that we build something that's altogether different than the things we've inherited, that the things that we've become, the things we've built our life around. And so, Jesus, would you help us? Just even pray now, would you, would you speak to people's hearts and even now, I'll just begin to go like this thing inside of you. Like I, I want more. I want more for you than that. And whether that's like sin or distraction or whatever that is, just like receive Jesus's words. You don't have to answer to them quickly. You don't have to defend. But Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and minister, come and have your way in this place. It's a part of the long work till building us into something more beautiful than we could ever build on our own. Thank you for your presence and your patience and your nearness. And we love you. We love you, and we want to love you more, and we love you. Would you stand as we worship through singing and worship Jesus?